0: So this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 5. It starts at verse 27. And it's the calling of St. Matthew or the calling of Levi. Our story today has two distinct sections. The first section looks like this. Jesus is going to introduce himself and call one of the most notorious, despicable, horrific sinners in that area. I mean, it's the worst guy you can imagine. Jesus reaches out to him and tries to become his friend. And then we're going to see how that man responds to Jesus' invitation. And that's a really good part of the story. Then the second part of our story is the Pharisees or the religious folks respond to Jesus who associates with such a wicked sinner. And then we're going to get to see Jesus respond to those religious punks as he deals with them. And then in the end, my whole hope is that what we will learn this morning is that Jesus' Desperately, emphatically loves sinners. And he doesn't just love sinners, but he pursues them. He he initiates contact with them. He dies for them because he loves sinners. And in the end, the story is really all of our own stories. It's a story about a God who loves us so much that he initiated contact, that he came to us, and he sought us to be his friends. And we as sinners said, Wow, why would you want to be my friend? And then he drawed us to himself or drew us, drew us to himself to be his friends, and he revolutionized and changed our life. Amen? And that's the story we're going to look at this morning, so it's a pretty good one. Well, if you would, look, at, look with me at Luke chapter 5, verse 20. Did I say 7? 27. Yes. Now, there's only a few verses here, so we're just going to read a little bit and then stop and then commentate on it. It begins like this. Luke 5, verse 27. After that, he, meaning Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. Now, I want to stop there real quick and talk about that a little bit. So the first thing, we are introduced to a new character in Jesus' life and in our life if we're reading through the Gospel of Luke. And his name is Levi. So he's a Jew, obviously. His name's Levi. He must be a Jew. And it says he's a tax collector, and it says he's sitting at his tax booth, meaning he's at work doing his job collecting taxes. Now, before we begin, I need to give you a little historical perspective on Jewish tax collectors. Now, last time I was here, I did that. But just for the sake of review and in order to saturate us in the context, I want to do it again real quick. A Jewish tax collector in this time period is the most despicable, most awful person you can imagine. I can't even think of an illustration in today's time that would be like a Jewish tax collector. The reason why is because Jerusalem or Israel has been held captive or been conquered by Rome. And Rome had set up shop in Jerusalem and they were ruling over the Jews and they were taxing them very heavily. And they were using that tax to build palaces for Herod and to build up this ginormous army that they had with their goal to conquer the entire known world. So if you're a Jew at this time and you're living in Jerusalem, you don't like Rome because Rome is taxing you heavily in order to raise up a bigger army, in order to continue to tax you heavily. And Rome wanted to use Jewish people in order to collect taxes from Jewish people because a Jewish tax collector would be able to extract more money from their own people because they understand their culture. They understand the weird Jewish customs that Romans aren't used to. And so they would sell the right to the highest bidder in order to be a tax collector. So a Jew would fork over a lot of cash in order to have the license to be a tax collector. Now, the first thought I have is why would any Jew want to fork over a lot of money in order to be the person who collects taxes from their own people. Well, there's two reasons why. One reason is because it's very lucrative, because with this license to collect taxes, you can collect as much as you want, and you can keep as much as you want as long as Rome gets what they want. You can keep a certain percentage for yourself. And it's very powerful. It's a powerful position Because Rome will give you a small army, a small Italian mob, if you will, to come with you in order to extract that money from your fellow Jewish neighbors. So you get money and power, and what man on the face of this planet doesn't want those two things? Anyone in here? So Levi is probably the worst, unbelievable, despicable, horrible person in the history of of the world at this time for a Jew. He's taking money from his own brothers. He's stealing from them, in a sense. They're poor. They're struggling to make ends meet. And he comes in and takes a percentage for himself. And he's living in a lap of luxury. And he's got a mob to make you do what he wants you to do when it comes to giving him money. I liken it to like a mob boss in Chicago, you know, where he comes to your business and he says, I want 20% every Wednesday of what you make. And if you don't, well... I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse, right? Nobody likes a tax collector. And so probably nobody likes Levi. And so our story says Jesus went out and he noticed Levi, a tax collector, sitting at his tax booth. What do you think Jesus is going to do? Or if you were a Jew at this time, what do you want Jesus to do? (laughs) He's going to go over there and flip that table over and sing something from Jesus Christ Superstar, right? Wow! You know what I mean? That's what I kind of want him to do. He's going to get up in his face and say, what are you doing to my people? Who do you think you are? Is he going to confront him? Is he going to punch him?
1: What do you want Jesus to
0: do? Well, let's look and see what he does do. Verse 27 still. Levi is sitting in his tax booth and Jesus said to him in red writing, follow me. What? Jesus is going to choose the most horrific sinner in all of town to be? One of his disciples to be on his team, not just on his team, but on his inner circle. I mean, this is only chapter five. And so in the past few chapters, Jesus has gone out and collected just a few disciples. He's gotten Peter. And now he's choosing Levi or or Matthew, as it is explained in Matthew and Mark, to be a part of his inner circle, his inner 12, his elite disciples. That's great. That's kind of peculiar, don't you think? But before we go any further, I want to I I say this. Do you notice that Jesus is the one who initiates contact? Jesus is the one that pursues Levi. In fact, the Greek is pretty emphatic here. It says that Jesus went out, so I'm assuming that he went out from home. You know, he got off the couch, went outside, and he's maybe out by the beach, out by the Sea of Galilee. And he, I don't know where they are actually, I haven't looked at that, but he's somewhere. He's outside, and there he sees uh, What's his name? Levi. I almost said Zacchaeus. He sees Levi sitting at his tax booth. And I imagine there's lots of people there, right? There's probably lots of people in line with money in their hand to give to Levi. Levi probably has a few accountants sitting at this booth with him. I imagine, in my mind, other booths, you know, because when there's a booth, there's always another booth, right? So there's probably cotton candy, maybe lamb chop somewhere. I hope there's a Euro booth because I'm always looking for the Euro booth. Amen. And Jesus is walking along, and then the Greek word says, He noticed, which is a very powerful word. He singled out, consciously singled out this man, Levi. I used to have a friend in college who could do this. It didn't matter where we were. We could be like at Chili's, or we could be like at a college mixer, or even Target. And he would walk in the place, wherever it was, and immediately, like within the first 30 seconds, he could tell you where all the pretty girls were. You know? He'd walk in and say, 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 8 o'clock. I'm like, how do you do that? He had like this built-in radar for all the hot girls. You know what I'm saying? And I imagine Jesus this way. He's got this built-in radar for all the most wicked, despicable guys out there. He's outside and he notices that guy, Matthew. I want him. Doesn't that just warm your heart a little bit? He wants Levi. Now, it's, that is really the gospel in its purest, simplest form. It is that God pursues us. It is that God seeks after us while we're sitting at our tax booth, counting our money in our sin. In fact, it actually is better than that. It's while we were sinners, God sent his son Christ from heaven to become a baby on the earth, to grow up in the ghettos of Galilee, to work a blue-collar job as a, car- a carpenter so that he could rub shoulders and eat and drink with nasty, selfish sinners just like you and me. Because Jesus loves sinners. And he pursues them. And he died for them. And that's the Gospel. It's not the other way around, although we often think of it as the other way around. Right? We often think that Levi should have got up from his table and approached Jesus and said, okay, I'm ready now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, did you notice that Levi didn't say, oh, look, there's Jesus, and Levi noticed Jesus, and Levi got up and said to Jesus, hey, I know who you are, and I'd like to follow you, but you know, I have some sin in my life, and I'm working on it. I'm actually doing much better. These past couple of weeks have been pretty good. But I know there's some things I still need to work on, so when are you going to be back around? Are you going to be back next week? Because maybe I'll be ready then. But isn't that the way we tend to think about it? But it's not the way it is. It's always the other way. Jesus went to Levi and said, follow me. And Jesus didn't go to Levi and said, I need you to quit doing this and I need you to stop doing that and I need you to start listening to Christian music only and then you can follow me. He just walked up to him and said, follow me. He didn't even ask, are you ready? Are you up for it? Can you handle it? He just said, Levi, I want you to follow me. How do you think Levi is going to respond? I like the way Michelangelo uh, it shows. I don't know if you can see this picture in this um, uh, that's on that might be on the screen. Uh, Michelangelo paints this picture of of, of of Jesus calling Levi. It's called the Calling of Saint Matthew. Um, now I didn't study art. I don't know a lot about art, but one thing I do know because my wife studied art is that artists put a lot of emphasis on the picture that they're painting. That there's a lot of meaning behind it. So in this picture. You can't see it very well, but I'll tell you that on the right-hand side is Jesus and Peter, and they're standing on the far right-hand side. And between Levi—I mean, between Jesus and Peter—and Levi, there is a huge space of darkness. It's just—it's completely dark. It's hard to see in this picture here. And the only thing that bridges that darkness is Jesus's finger. Can you see that in the picture? So Jesus' finger is the only thing in that darkness. So it's kind of cool. It's like Jesus saying, I'm bridging the darkness to talk to you, Levi. I'm bringing light into your darkness, Levi. And it's kind of a broken period, so it's not really Palestinian. (laughs) Levi's wearing expensive tights and a funny hat. Thankfully, though, Jesus is not wearing tights. In this picture, Michelangelo painted him with a robe, and he's barefooted because he's a holy man. But he's pointing to Levi with this, this famous Michelangelo finger. Like the finger that he always uses is this kind of forearm crooked finger where Jesus is pointing to Levi like that. It's the same finger that he painted in the Sistine Chapel of God touching the finger of, of Adam and giving him life. He uses this finger all the time. It is, I'm giving you life, Matthew. I'm coming out of the darkness, through the darkness, and giving you light. And do you see how Matthew's responding? If you can tell, Matthew's going, Who, me? Why would you choose me? I'm a wicked, filthy, filthy, disgusting sinner. And again, this is the Gospel in its purest sense. That when we recognize who Christ is, and we recognize that He's in hot pursuit after little old me, our natural response is to say, Who, me? Can I suggest that there might be some folks in this room today who God is in hot pursuit after your soul. And I would be willing to bet whatever money is on Levi's table that you know that. That you know that he's in pursuit of you. That he's been pursuing you for quite some time. And as soon as you can recognize that you are a sinner and you don't deserve to be his friend, and that he's asking you to be his friend, that he's inviting you to be his friend, then your natural, irresistible response is to be like Matthew's or Levi's. Who, me? Last week, we passed out all these door hangers in our community in order to get people to, to, to come to our preview service. And the door hangers said something like, Jesus loves the guy who curses all day at work and then comes home and kisses his kids. And our hope is to get people to look at it and say, oh, I might go to this church. But what we're really trying to say in the door hanger is not that you're going to hell if you curse all day at work. Or that you're going to hell if you curse all day at work and then kiss your kids. But really, there's a dichotomy there between cursing with your mouth and then using that same mouth to kiss your innocent kids. And, and you, you quickly recognize that when you have kids of your own, right? Like, ever since I've had kids, I've quickly realized how much of an evil, wicked person I am. You know, whenever my toddler begins to imitate me, I recognize immediately that that kind of behavior is inappropriate in front of toddlers. Not that it was wicked and evil and bad, but just that, you know, you don't want your toddlers to imitate. Well, maybe it was wicked and evil and bad. I'm I'm still not willing to admit that fully. But you begin to immediately recognize that there's something wrong with the way we are when you compare it to the innocence of a child. And In the same way, there's something wrong with my heart, with my selfishness, with my evil, when you compare it to the holiness and the purity of Christ. It's kind of like, the prophet Isaiah. At one point, Isaiah saw God. He, he was confronted by God. Again, God approached and pursued Isaiah. And Isaiah said, Oh, hey, God. No, that's not what he said. He fell on his face and he said, Oh, woe is me. I'm, I'm, I'm ruined. Because I can't even speak in this place. Because as soon as I speak, those words cross my lips and my lips are unpure. And those words will taint this holy, heavenly place and I can't even speak. So there's... a there, there, is a knowledge within all of us, whether we're willing to admit it or not, that we are sinful. That we are disgusting in comparison to a holy God. And if we recognize that, if we really know ourselves in that sense, and then Jesus walks up with His crooked finger and says, follow Me. Our irresistible response is to follow. In fact, that is His response. If you'll look at the verse... It says this, verse 28. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Now, if you're smart, and I know all of you are, and you're thinking about this story, then you know that Levi is sitting at his tax booth. He's got money on the table. He's got a line of people with money in their hand to give to him. He's probably got some accountants, some bean counter sitting there with him counting all of that money. And Jesus walks up and says, follow me. And Levi says, okay. And follows him. He just left all of that. The wealth, the power, the career, the position. I'm imagining the accountant saying something like, where are you going? What are you going to do? Can we have this? (laughs) And I imagine all the Jews saying, does that mean we don't have to pay taxes today? But Levi got up and left it all to follow and again, this is the purest sense of the gospel. God comes down to mingle with us wicked sinners. When he invites us to come, our natural response is to sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I don't deserve this. And then Jesus says, follow. And you say, okay. Irresistibly, as Calvin would say, it's irresistible grace. We, we just follow. When we know what we are and what he's offering on the table, we must take it. But it gets even better than that. In the next verse, it says this. Levi, verse 29, gave a big feast, or threw a huge party, for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors, and other people too, who were reclining at the table with them. So again... Pure sense of the gospel. God comes down, chooses us a wicked sinner. While we're sitting in our sin, we respond irresistibly by saying, okay. And then we throw a party and we want to tell all of our friends. And that's what Levi does. He has this huge feast at his house, invites all his friends, invites Jesus, and introduces them to everyone. Isn't that just perfect? One of the reasons why I got into church planting is because... Um, I learned in seminary that church planting is by far the most effective means of reaching lost people for Christ. In fact, it led one of the leading missiologists in our country, Peter Wagner, to say that church planting is the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven. Which means if you want to reach lost people, the only and the best way to do it is to plant new churches. And the reason why is because a new young church is, well, it's new and it's young. And we don't have a lot of people. And we don't have any programs. And we don't have any committees. And all we have is this insatiable desire to reach people for Christ. And so we get to spend all of our time and all of our money and all of our metabolism on figuring out ways to get people out there in our building. Whereas a more established church has a lot of other things to point its attention to. And rightfully so. You've got programs, you've got kids, you've got marriage classes, you've got all kinds of things, and it becomes less focused on reaching out to the lost. The same thing can be said about individual Christians, unfortunately. Statistics reveal that if you've been a Christian for a long period of time in your life, well, you probably only have Christian friends in your social network. You might not have any non-Christian friends except for the few that you work with, and you don't like them. But if you're a non-Christian you probably don't have any Christians as friends because you don't like them. All your friends are non-Christians. But then once you get saved, now you have all these non-Christian friends that you love that you just want to share the gospel with. Now, if you're a new church and you're reaching new people for Christ who have nothing but non-saved friends, you've just got a revolution. That's an amazing thing. Now, I imagine that Levi has no friends but tax collectors. Right? Who wants to be a friend to Levi? Only his fellow tax collector friends. So he throws this huge party. And in the Greek it says literally a ginormous, in the Greek it says ginormous, feast. Which means he's bringing out the lamb and the merlot and he's just having a good time with his wealthy, powerful friends who are tax collectors. And he brings Jesus. And again, this is just the gospel in its purest sense. In fact, I want to say this. I could probably preach a whole sermon on just that verse. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to be on mission. That we throw parties. And that we have meat. And maybe even some Merlot. We just have a good time in blessing our neighbors, blessing our community, blessing our friends, and then we bring Jesus to and we introduce them. I would like to challenge the church to be thinking more along the lines of using those gifts to reach people for Christ. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to follow evangelism explosion. You don't have to declare the, the four spiritual laws every time you meet someone. You don't have to whip out a napkin, you know what I mean, and draw this bridge and the cross. and the you, know, you don't have to do that. All you really have to do is just do what Jesus did and eat with them and love them and let them know that Jesus loves Sinners. Some of you are probably already doing this, but I just want to say it anyway. Just throw a party and invite all your neighbors. You may have been wanting to meet your neighbors for a long time. Just invite them over for dinner. I doubt they'll say no. And if they do, it's their loss because you have steak, right? It's going to be great. Bless them. And maybe you're not good at cooking, but I bet you're good at eating, right? So just order something. Like Go to Emo's. No, don't go to Emo's. Order something good and and, and bring that to your house and let people eat it. It's good. It's a good excuse to clean your house and it's a good excuse to have some fun. But maybe you're not hospitable. Maybe you don't want to clean your house. Maybe you're good at baseball. Join a baseball league. And then after the baseball game, go to Chili's and have a burger with some of your teammates and just rub shoulders and eat and drink with them as Christ did and let them know that Jesus loves sinners and that you're one too. That's what we really need to be doing. The church needs to be on mission in that way. Now, our story so far has been awesome, right? It's really just been all four points of the gospel. God came down. He pursued us. He rubbed shoulders with us. He called us. We, recognizing our need for a Savior and sinfulness, our own sinfulness, responded by leaving all and following him. And then, the part that sometimes we forget, we tell others about the good news of Christ. Great story. In fact, we could end right now and we could end at this feast, right? Eating a lamb chop and drinking some Cabernet and this is just go home. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? I kind of would like to do that. I'm, and I'm in the mood for a lamb chop all of a sudden. But our story doesn't end there. It never does. So it's a short story, but there's still more to come. So I'm going to warn you, we're going to take a turn now, and it's going to get ugly. It's going to get worse. The Pharisees are going to show up. The judgmental, religious folks. And let's see what they, what they do. Verse 20, 30, Verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So, this always tends to happen. Jesus is doing what he's here to do, which is to reach out to sinners and to love on sinners. And the Pharisees show up, and the Bible says they were grumbling. And the Greek word there is a pretty interesting word. It's agon gingon. It sounds interesting. I, I don't even really know if that's how you pronounce it. I hate saying Greek words because who really knows how to pronounce Greek words anyway? We all have to make it up. I do, at least. I do have a Bible software program that pronounces it for you, but it's computer-generated, and I don't understand what he says anyway. But it sounds, all I know about the Greek word is it sounds like what it is. Does that make sense? So the, the Greek word is something like, and the word is, means, grumbling. So it sounds, pronunciation sounds like it's action. The Pharisees were, and it's a pretty interesting word because Luke reserves this word only for instances when people are grumbling at Jesus for the association He has with outcasts. Isn't that interesting? Luke has a special word he uses for the Pharisees every time they grumble at Jesus only when He is associating with outcasts. And this tends to be kind of a thing about Luke. Luke sees Jesus as this great physician who has come to heal those who need healing. The leper, the widow, the, the, the tax collector, the prostitute, the outcasts of society. That's the way Luke tends to always portray Jesus. And then Luke has this special word for the religious punks who go, It's actually also the same word in the Old Testament Septuagint that is used of the Israelites when they complain at God in the, in the, in the desert. So it's a word that means inappropriate Grumbling. If I could say it another way, when we recognize how sinful we are, how wretched we are, how blind we are, how selfish we are, and then that God would come down to, to to muddle around with us, and then to die for us while we were still in our sin, and then continually pursue us and pull our little heartstrings and draw us closer to Himself, and then, if we actually have the nerve, about people who are in the same state that we're in, that's inappropriate grumbling. And so at this point, I kind of feel the need to apologize. And, And maybe just this year, actually, I've been more and more sensitive about the fact that I need to apologize for my own people. Because if we're honest with each other, Christians grumble, don't we? In fact, the world knows us as being judgmental and condescending. And I, oh, I'm starting to realize that I need to apologize for that. For my people, and, and, and possibly even for myself, even though I don't want to admit it, I've been judgmental. The Bible says they will know we are Christians by our love, and I know that in America, they know we are Christians by our grumbling. In fact, I just had a conversation with someone last night, Who said that they went to a church, they invited a friend who was living with their partner, not married. And when they walked in the door, they immediately felt judged. And that's natural to feel judged. But then they were judged. Someone said, you need to get married. Now, I know the Bible says that, but that's just judgmental. That's grumbling about people who are lost. People who are far from God. God... Will do his work on them when God is ready to do his work on them, and we, in a sense, just push them out the back door. And that person will probably never come back to church. And so, what I want to say to my Christian friends and family, and my people, if you will, and to those of you who are here, especially who maybe aren't Christians, is that I'm really, really, truly sorry about that. It is not supposed to be the experience. Of someone who is far from God. Your experience is supposed to feel the amazing love and grace and mercy of a holy God who knows we are sinners. And despite the fact that we are sinners, and because of the fact that we are sinners, He came to rub shoulders with us and to die for us while we were sinners. And I'll admit to you that I'm still a sinner. And I'll even admit to you that I like my sin. And that God has to really shake me up to get me to admit that it's not glorifying to Him. And so I'm sorry about that. But you know what makes me feel better? Is in this passage, if you look at it, the Pharisees aren't really grumbling at Jesus. If you look at it, they're grumbling at His disciples. It says the Pharisees grumbled at His disciples saying, why do y'all hang out with sinners? So what's cool about that is you see, We look like him. He hangs out with sinners. He's accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. He's hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. The worst of the worst of the worst. And then in this verse, it suggests the disciples are too. The disciples are the ones hanging out with the riffraff. And so the Pharisees come and pick on the disciples. Why are you all hanging out with them? And then I love the fact that Jesus answers the question. It's almost like the disciples don't know what to say. Look, we're just doing what he's doing, okay? Which is what the church is supposed to look like. And then Jesus steps in and says, hey, y'all step off. Okay, I'm here for the sick and they're sick, so leave them alone. You you stop bugging my people. I love that. And Jesus says, I have come for the sick, because it is the sick who need a physician. I have not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance." And what I love about this is that Jesus has these just amazing little I am statements, especially in Luke. There's about a dozen of them in Luke. They're called mission statements. You probably know what a mission statement is, right? I mean, this has been real trendy since the 80s, and and it's still real cool. We all have, you know, vision statements and mission statements, and it's we exist to blah, 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 right? I think Christ's community says we exist to... Make friends, make disciples, and preach Christ around the world. Make Christ known around the world. So that's your mission statement. And, so I, and I love mission statements. I, I spend probably a lot of time writing mission statements. I love that Jesus has mission statement. His mission statement is, I have come for the sick. And he says this like a dozen times. He says, I have come for the sick. I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have come not to be served, but to serve. I have come for the weak And he says, I have come for the sick. Now, Luke, if you know, is a doctor. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and he's a physician. And so he takes this word, and he gives it a really interesting kind of a spin, theologically speaking, if you think about it. He says that he came, Jesus says, I came, Elelithia, I have come, in order to bring healing to the sick, but not to the well. Well, that's interesting. Theologically speaking, there is no one who is well, for we have all fallen and we're all broken. So, what is he saying here? And then he says, I've come to call the righteous to repentance, not the, I mean, the unrighteous to repentance, not the righteous. There's none that are righteous, right? So, what is he saying? Well, he's speaking sarcastically to the Pharisees. He's saying, Look, it's the sick who need a doctor. And you don't see yourself as sick, so you don't see yourself as needing a doctor. But Luke, I mean, but Levi, Oh, he sees it. I can't imagine that Levi doesn't know just the ugliness of his own soul. How do you take money from people who are hurting every day and look in their eyes and not know how wicked and evil you are? You know he feels that shame and that guilt. So when Jesus says, I want you to follow me, irresistibly, Levi says, oh yeah, this is what I need. This is what I really want. I want to be done with this guilt. I want to be done with this shame. I want to be done with this sin in my life. I do need a doctor to fix what's broken in me. But the Pharisees, they don't think they need a doctor. Right? Because they're good. They're righteous in their own eyes. In fact, Jesus tells another story in Luke chapter 18. It's, I think it's like a joke. He says, okay, two guys walk into a temple. A Pharisee and, you guessed it, a tax collector. It's like Jesus' thing, he always likes to pit those two together. I kind of see him as like, okay, two guys walk into a bar. (laughs) But two guys walk into a temple to pray. A Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee stands there and says, oh God, thank you that I'm not like other people. That I'm not a prostitute or a pimp or a, a dirty, rotten, scoundrel, thieving, stealing, no good for nothing tax collector like this guy. I thank you, Lord, that I'm so smart that I tithe my mint and my dill. And that I pray every day, twice actually. And that I do my quiet time at 6 a.m. over a cup of Starbucks. And that I go to church and then I serve in the children's ministry. I thank You, Lord, that I'm not like the tax collector. And then Jesus says, but the tax collector says, recognizing his own sin, beats his chest and falls on his face and says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And then Jesus, the punchline of his joke says, this one walked away justified. Because it is the sick who recognizes his need for a doctor who when the doctor shows up, he does what the doctor tells him to do. He follows. The so-called healthy who don't need a doctor, they don't even want to know what the doctor has to say. So Jesus is essentially saying, I've come for the sick because they know they're sick. I can't help the well because they don't know they're sick. And again, that's the gospel in its purest sense. So in closing, I just wanted to say two things. One thing to the unbeliever in the room, and I know there's some here. I actually hope there's some here. You're the guy or the gal that you know that God's been pulling you. He's been pursuing you. And what I want you to hear more than anything is that He loves sinners. And I'm one. And we're all one. And you're one. And He loves you despite, because of, and for your sin. He's going to die for that sin. And if you're here this morning, you know that He's been pulling on your heart. You just, you just know it. I, I, I'm willing to bet a lot of money that you know He's been pursuing you and tugging you, maybe even for years. In fact, that's why you're here. He's pulling on you right now. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know that He loves you and that He died for you and that He's inviting you to come. But before you can come, you have to recognize that you're sick and that you need a doctor. I've shared the Gospel with lots of my friends in college and almost all of them had the same thing to say to me. I must have been doing something wrong. They all said that they believed it. I believe that. But they said, but I'm not ready yet. I still want to go to the places I go on Friday night. I still want to do the things I do on Saturday night. I had one friend who actually said it like this, I still have some party in me. And, and what I didn't know then, what I should have said is, and so do I. I like parties. I mean, Levi threw a party. Parties are cool. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you have to be a stick in the mud. I mean, you can have parties. I like outdoor backyard barbecue type parties with bratwurst and sauerkraut and hefeweizen. You know, it's okay to have a party. Christians can be fun too. Jesus doesn't say, I want you to clean up your act and then come. He just says, I love you, I want you, I'm calling you. And if that's you today, I promise you, if you come, he's, he's inviting you to come. It's irresistible. You're going to eventually. My hope is that you would today. And I promise you that when you do, you'll never regret it. I know a lot of Christians. I've been a, I've been a pastor since I was 18. I've never met a Christian who said, I regretted the day I became a Christian. <laughs> You're going to have a great party tonight if today is the day you recognize that he's been pulling you and you're here because he's pulling you and you are sick and need a doctor and he's the man for the job if that's you this morning I'd like to pray with you Pastor Mike's down here in the front we'd both love to pray with you and help to bring you into a community of Christians who are striving to love you as much as Christ loves you that's our goal and then the last thing I want to say is to my, my people, to, 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 to the believers, to those of you who have already tasted the irresistible goodness of God's grace and mercy. My, my challenge to us as a church is that we don't have to be sticks in the mud. Amen? We really do need to throw some parties in our backyard and invite people to Jesus. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, like I have, and I've worked in the church, I don't have a lot of friends who are outside of the church. They're all in the church because I work in a church. You know? All I know is Christians, and that bugs me sometimes. I really want to rub shoulders with non-Christians. And so my hope is that the church looks like Jesus in the sense that he pursued sinners and that his disciples pursued sinners, and Jesus is calling us to pursue sinners. And the reason why I'm planning a church is because I want our church to be in hot pursuit after sinners who live in the suburbia that I live in. I want to know them. I want to know what they like. I want to know what kind of music they listen to, which means I'm going to have to know who the black-eyed bees are. You know what I mean? I'm going to have to know who Lady Gaga is. I'm going to have to understand these things so that I can love them and communicate with them and know what they don't like so that I don't say those things and turn them off from Christ. So I can be like Paul who says, I'll be all things to all people that I might just save one. My challenge to the church today is that we need to start getting back on a mission. Jesus is the great physician who heals the sick. But did we notice that he didn't you know, set up shop and put a sign on the door and put an ad in the paper saying, doctor, you know, on residency here. No, he took his bag and he went to them. And he joined their party and he went to their Chili's and he hung out with them in order to make them know that he loves sinners. So my hope today for the church is that we'd get on mission, we'd get out there, we'd rub shoulders with Christians. Darrell Bach in his commentary on this passage says, Discipleship means mission. And mission cannot mean separatism. We have to be not just casual, but in culture in community with people who are far from God if we want to draw them close to God. There's no other way. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank You so much that You have saved a wretch like me. I know myself. I know I'm unworthy. I, I feel often like Isaiah. I, I can't even pray. I can't even speak. I'm unclean. And yet You have chosen me to be one of your children, to be one of your disciples, to be a part of your, 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 your kingdom. And I know all of us in this room probably feel the same way, that we are unworthy and that you have saved a wretch like us, and that we were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see and we thank you. We can never thank you enough. In fact, that's why we come this morning on this Lord's Day to worship you for all the goodness and the mercy and the grace that you've given us, wicked, evil sinners. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us, that you would begin to shape our lives in such a way that our heart breaks for the lost the way your heart breaks for the lost, that you broke so much that you died for them. I pray, Lord, that you would give us all that radar that sees the sinner immediately and pulls him out and notices him and gravitates towards him, that we may seek to show him or her how much you love them. And then finally, Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who has hesitated to come to church because they've been burned in the past. Or, or, or you've been drawing them and drawing them and drawing them, but they're just resistant to your, your grace, to your offer of, of, of salvation. I pray, Lord, that even now your spirit will begin to work in their hearts, that you'll soften their hearts, that they will even today come forward and speak to Mike or I and look Um, to begin to, to leave it all and follow You. And I know they won't regret it. And we'll give You the glory and You the praise because You are beautiful. Amen.